Our call to worship this morning can be found in Psalms 9, 7 through 9. It's on page 502 in your pew Bible. Psalms 9, 7 through 9. The Lord reigns forever. He has established his throne for judgment. He rules the world in righteousness and judges the peoples with equity. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Our gospel readings are from Matthew 24. That's, those are pages uh, 914 and 915 in your pew Bible, beginning with Matthew 24, 3 through 14. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of the birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But whoever stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. The second gospel reading will be Matthew 24, 36 through 44. But about that day or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving, up, giving in marriage, up to the day that Noah entered the ark. And then... And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let, let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. I don't know how you process the hearing of the word in as much as it's read to you. Uh, I do know what my own mind goes to. And I want to just share with you briefly that what you've heard, read this morning, are brief portions, or actually substantial portions, of Christ's eschatology, that is to say Christ's understanding of what would happen at the end of time, at the end of days. Interestingly enough, it seems to have uh, different kinds of references. Part of it seems to refer very clearly to the fall of Jerusalem, which happened 1931 years ago, or 1929 years ago, or my math is never that good. Um, 
about that many years ago anyway, and some of it is clearly referent to something yet to come. And so there is a, a series of things that all of that fits into. Some of that's very specific, and some of that is taught in terms of readiness and allegory. And last of all, some of it is the major portion of text from which our Christian brothers and sisters who believe in the rapture draw their evidence from. Two will be threshing, one will be taken, and the other left. Three will be gathered here, and so forth and so on. And so uh, let's pray that they're theologically wrong because you never know when your airline pilot will make it immediately to heaven and you will be on your own in the friendly, now not so friendly skies. Cruising an aluminum tube at 35,000 feet at 580 miles an hour with no pilot. That just doesn't sound like a good deal to me, but um, that seems to be what some people believe. As human beings, we listen to the words of Christ and we really, really, really want to nail it down. Because what we don't like is the unknown. Isn't that true? Oh, come on. You can't admit that? Lots of people hate surprises, hate them. They want to know. And a lot of people can't live with ambiguity. They, they, they have to kind of call it one way or the other. They want to make a decision. So we're caught in a long period of something like ambiguity. We read the text. We come to some very uh, clear sort of mathematical uh, calculation or understanding, as did our forefather, William Miller. A more devout, sincere, studious man you would not find, an itinerant preacher. He went from place to place, church to church, multiple denominations at the time, Methodist, Baptist, uh, congregational, it didn't matter. He went from place to place and preached. And he studied his word, and he was really interested in Daniel. Not so much the first six chapters, but more the last six. Particularly chapters 8 and 9 and 10 and 11 and 12. And particularly 8 and 11. There were specific prophecies referring in those chapters to time, times, and half a time. What did that mean? There were specific things in those prophecies that referred to the number of days until something would be fulfilled or something would happen. And he began to wonder, like so many Christians, is it not possible from all of this to make an accurate prediction of when Christ's eschatology will be fulfilled? The chart on the front of your bulletin is William Miller's 1843 chart. And for those of you who don't know, that is a photo of William Miller. Or at least a portrait, a photo of a portrait. If you'd like to know more about the numbers in that chart, please see Eric after the service. He got a little preview to this bulletin cover and was intrigued and did some research as to what these various numbers might mean. As it turns out, if you look at the complete chart, William Miller found four methods for calculating the date that he chose, which was 1843. That was the year he chose. Four methods. Now that takes some intellectual rigor. 
That takes some searching of the scriptures. That takes some sincere and hard work. I laud him. 1843 came. He preached his message of the nearness of the coming of Jesus. And a group of people who believed became known as, guess what? Adventists. And the Seventh-day Adventist church didn't even exist. It didn't exist until 1863. In point of fact, oh boy, what did I do? Shaking my head, I seem to have thrown the universe off. In point of fact, when Jesus didn't come in 1843, most Adventists did not give up even though they were a minority. Very few people, or churches, I should say, officially believed in the second return of Christ imminently in that day. So to be an Adventist was to be marked as something unique in Christianity. Today, virtually all Christians agree that there will be some kind of end point, terminus to our experiment and time on earth, and that Christ will indeed return. So it's not so remarkable as it once was. But this group of people became known as Adventists. And in 18, after the disappointment of 1843, which we hear very little about, recalculations were made. And yes, you guessed it. October 22, 1844 was chosen. Now, when I found out that my wife's due date was on or about October 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, I said, Lord, don't let me be an Adventist pastor with a son born on the anniversary of the Great Disappointment. <laughs> so he was born October 23. On a Sabbath. Way to go, hon. Good job. Kept him in the oven that extra day there. Well, uh, the chart there is the 1843 chart. Eventually revised to come to October 22, 1844. People sold their lands and houses and property to unbelieving relatives for whom they didn't believe it would matter, for certainly it would all be consumed by fire anyway they gave away their earthly goods. They prepared special robes known as ascension garments. Not all of them, many people did. They went to uh, constant religious services of prayer and thanksgiving and singing. They prepared their hearts to meet the Lord. They didn't harvest crops, many of them. This isn't universally true. But can you imagine giving that much weight to the calculations of the second coming only to have the day, a cold, crisp day in New England, come and go and no cloud the size of a man's hand appear on the horizon? No glory shined forth. No trumpet call heard. No dead in Christ resurrected. No ascension. No anything. Just a day of black disappointment. And now profound questions about how to move forward in one's walk with God based on this failure. Some people said... That's it. That's my ticket. I'm out. Don't talk to me about any of this anymore. I've got to rebuild my life and 
maybe there's a God, maybe there isn't, but I uh, don't think we can figure out too much about him and I'm going to do my thing. There were those who went back to their churches of origin and just said, well, so much for the Advent movement. And there were those who said, well, we got it wrong once, we got it wrong twice, what can we learn? Oh yeah, that little text in Matthew 24. No man knows the day or the hour. Guess we better quit trying to set dates. Only unfortunately, Adventists haven't communicated their failures loudly enough because if you look at the front of the bulletin, and I made reference to this at the time, you remember I was joking because there were huge patches of emptiness up here and I said it looked like we could tell where the rapture had taken place and where it hadn't? You were all still here? Well, it looks like some people, very confident, did what their forebearers had done and said, joy to the world, the Lord is coming May 21, 2011. According to my calendar, that date has come and gone. And uh, it looks like to the right of that is their uh, attempt at a remedy to this embarrassment. A bulletin board that says, a billboard that says, that was awkward. And quotes Matthew 24, no one knows the day or the hour. We're still who we are, aren't we? We still want to know, lock it down. We still want to know with certainty. We still want to... You know, it's kind of like an appointment. You want to know dinner is at 8 because you want to know that you can slide in at the socially acceptable time at 8.15 and all will be well and you can be doing your own thing right up into the time that you have to shower, put on your makeup and clothes. Or in the case of the fellows, I hope, just the clothes. We get there, right? But we do it socially just at that last minute and we want to do our own thing right up into the last minute. That's the way we operate. And I'm guessing, based on what we just heard in the text, that that isn't going to work so well when it comes to the second coming of Jesus. We don't get to do our own thing right up into the last minute and slide in at 8.15 for an 8 o'clock appointment. In fact, he decided in his infinite wisdom, the Father, who knows how many millennia or how many uh, whatever increment of time, long time ago, decided not to share that information with anybody. Decided that it would be ambiguous that perhaps even you and I might play a role in when that happens. Is that blasphemy? To some it may be. To some it may be. Let's take a look for a moment at Matthew 24 and this passage that Christ speaks. I'm going to read a few passages in Isaiah to remind ourselves of where Christ drew inspiration himself for his own eschatology. And we're going to try to understand it in several major categories before we go home today and draw all of the encouragement and all of the hope and all of the joy that we can from it. For it is his word to us. Matthew 24. Verse 1, 
actually backing up to 2337. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left you to, left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is Jesus mourning over Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives. This is Jesus looking prophetically ahead to terrible times to come for the city, perhaps in the way distant future, but also certainly in the not so distant future. The Romans would come into Jerusalem around 70 AD to quelch a revolt. They would surround the city. Ultimately, there would be a break in the siege and those astute and listening and having heard the prophecy spoken here would leave and others would stay to their utter demise. The Romans were cruel. Blood flowed in the streets. The temple was burned and destroyed and there's never been another. Jesus in his mind's eye looks at this. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked? I tell you, truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. What a prophecy. This place that's the symbol of the seat of God's presence among us, this place that houses the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant where the Shekinah glory rests, this place that's symbolic of God's presence in the midst of his people will be no more. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and at the end of the age? Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. First of all, there will be many false messiahs. And they'll deceive a lot of people. We have this happening even today. Not all of them claim to be messiahs. Some of them are the David Koreshes and the Jim Jones of our world. Some of them are the Pol Pots, believe it or not and the Kim Jong-ils, and the Stalins, and the Hitlers. Offering a non-religious salvation, to be sure, but each of them in their own right, offering a salvation for a group of people. False messiahs, deceiving many, leading many astray. Watch out that no one deceives you. Verse 6, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you're not alarmed. I read, at least in the Yahoo pages this week, that the war in Iraq is declared over. Wars and rumors of wars. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines. And earthquakes in various places, or diverse places, the King James says. All these are the very beginnings of birth pains. So often we quote the tragedies that are happening in our world as evidence of the immediacy of the coming. And Christ describes all of these things, famine, earthquake, pestilence, war, and rumor of war. He describes all of those as the beginning of birth pains. 
Now, I am not for a split second going to pretend that I understand the pain of the birthing process. But ladies, let me ask you this. Was one centimeter dilation worse or was childbirth worse? It's an honest question. I'm guessing you were in a lot more pain during actual childbirth than at the beginning of the process. Is that right? Would someone say no or yes? Thank you very much. I meant it when I said I wouldn't pretend. We're at the beginning. The beginning of birth pains. It's not my illustration, it's God's. He says it's like giving birth to a baby, this coming of Christ, this end of the age. There's a lot of struggle and a lot of time and a lot of pain involved. At some point, you're going to be persecuted, put to death. Now, this too has happened multiple times, has it not? Was the Christian church persecuted under Diocletian in the first century? Was it persecuted in the second century? Yes. Was it persecuted in the third? Yes. Not so much. Once Constantine declared Christianity the official religion, things backed off a bit. Were Christian sects within the church persecuted for the next thousand, two thousand years? Yes. It never ends. The martyrs are described in Revelation sitting under the uh, altar of the throne, crying out to God, how much longer will it be before you avenge us? They're there, it says. At least this is the metaphor. This is the image. This is the picture. And Jesus describes this coming and this happening, and yet even though it's happened in multiple cycles, we're still not somehow there. You'll be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate one another. There are over 340 denominations in the United States of Christians alone, and most of us don't talk to each other, let alone our Jewish or Islamic counterparts. Plenty of misapprehension and hatred, fear. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but whoever stands firm to the end will be saved. And don't you just see that one every day? Is love growing cold? One could argue that love is still everywhere you look. Charming British film, Love Actually. The thesis is love is everywhere you look. There's something to it. I certainly see lots of love in this congregation, in this family. But when I look at the world as a whole, and I see the atrocities committed politically, socially, environmentally, when I look at the de demise of family in North America, particularly in Western Europe, when I look at the selfishness of business and business leaders who aren't content to pay themselves 50 times what the lowest person in their payroll makes. They're not content until they've paid themselves hundreds or thousands of times what the lowest person on their payroll makes. This is so unlike what God calls us to. It's so foreign to what he would want for us. Love is growing cold. But there's something about persevering and something about staying in faith. 
And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world. That's the one we traditionally latch on to, isn't it? We've got to be preachers of the gospel and do evangelism because Jesus can't come until everyone is heard. I'm not sure how that's going to happen. Technology is a marvelous tool, but the more technological our societies get, the less room they seem to have for God in general. Have you found that to be true? I would suggest to you if our teenagers read their Bibles a tenth of the amount of time they spend texting, they would have the bulk of it memorized by the time they're 20. Not fair to pick on teenagers. They learn so quickly that they absorb the truths of Scripture much more rapidly than the rest of us. How do we spend our time? Learning to try to text? Sorry. I couldn't resist. That's why we give it to a teenager here. Texts. Well, our time is short, and I, I can't pick on every passage here. But Jesus lays it out with these sorts of conditions. He describes an abomination of the holy place that causes desolation taken from Daniel. Jesus knew the book of Daniel. He read the book of Daniel, which is why we should know it and read it too. And he uses it in verse 17 to warn people about what's going to be happening when the Romans destroy Jerusalem. But we understand it to have an end time fulfillment too. We understand it to be something that's important on the larger prophetic scale. In verse 22, Jesus seems to return to end-time eschatology because he says, if those days had not been short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, there he is, don't believe it. Many will be deceived, even the elect, if possible. I told you ahead of time. And then he illustrates it. If he, they say he's in the wilderness or in Jerusalem or here or there, don't believe it. He cites scripture. Reminds us of a passage. The sun will be darkened. The moon won't give its light. The stars will fall from the sky. The heavenly bodies will be shaken. Reminds me of Isaiah. It's not exactly the one I think I'm going to quote, but turn to Isaiah, if you would, Isaiah 9. Excuse me, Isaiah 13, verse 9. See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. I will make people scarcer than pure gold, more rare than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will shake from its place at the wrath of the Lord Almighty in the day of his burning anger. That's apocalyptic. Isaiah is not writing this about the end of time, per se. He's writing about this in his day. 
So many of his prophecies, if we move over to say 18, it's against Cush. 19, it's against Egypt. This kind of language. Jesus borrows it here in 29. The sun will be darkened. The moon won't give its light. The stars are going to fall. The heavens are going to be shaken. At that time, the Son of Man will appear in the sky and the peoples of the earth will mourn. They'll see the Son of Man. Excuse me. Then they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and will gather his elect from the four winds, the four corners of the earth, from one end of the heavens to the other. And he finishes this by teaching as a fig tree blossoms in the summer and leaves come out, you know heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not. Now we get to the passage that I'm going to end on. Verse 36, but about that day, no one knows, or about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood actually came and took them all away. That's how it'll be at the end. And in light of that, he says, keep watch because you do not know what day your Lord will come. Understand this. If you'd known when your house was going to be broken into, you would have been ready. You would have kept watch. You would have been prepared. Who then is the faithful and wise servant, verse 45, whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for those servants whose master finds them doing what he's asked them to do when he returns. He doesn't ask us to do anything but be prepared. That isn't about emergency kits. That isn't about preaching apocalypsis or setting dates or putting up billboards, selling off property or wearing ascension robes. It's not about any of that. It's about loving God supremely and our neighbors as ourselves. It's about affirming the goodness and grace of God to a world in constant pain and brokenness. It's not about railing against the system. It's about envisioning and embracing ways in which we can creatively, by the Spirit of God, breathe new life into a dying planet. We don't know when he's going to come. It really bugs me when I hear people say, Oh, it's okay if we dump 36 trillion gallons of sewer and trash into the bay a year. It doesn't matter. Jesus will clean it up when he comes. It's all going to burn anyway. That's a good Christian. <laughs> Occupy till he comes. And love till he comes. Don't let your love grow cold. And don't let your service cease. Be doing what he's called you to do. And don't pretend you can figure it out. You can't. If you could, you'd be ready. So be ready. 
all the time. And now may the God eternal, who speaks as one, who promises to come and redeem all flesh, we pray to him be glory and honor forevermore. Amen.